if you want to make business joyful, but also very successful, it has to be embedded very, very early on, day one. Welcome to View from the Top, the podcast. That was Hamdi Ulakaya, founder and CEO of Chobani. Hamdi visited Stanford's Graduate School of Business as part of View from the Top, a speaker series where students, like me, sit down to interview business leaders from around the world. I'm Alexandra Idle, an MBA student of the class of 2022. This year, I had the pleasure of interviewing Hamdi on campus. Hamdi recounted his entrepreneurial journey from a shepherding farm in Turkey to five people in an old factory to a billion-dollar food business. He also discussed his belief in focusing on people over profits and his commitment to hiring people from refugee communities. You're listening to View from the Top, the podcast. Hamdi, welcome to the GSB. We are so excited to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is so hard. <laughs> Just a little extra challenge. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> well, campus has been buzzing with your arrival. And in fact, there's actually been a bit of a debate about what is the best flavor of Chobani yogurt. So in this true spirit of business school, I set out to do a bit of market research <clears throat> and polled the class to see what was the most popular flavor. So out of strawberry, peach, blueberry, and raspberry, Hamdi, would you like to guess which flavor won? Uh, it's blueberry. Blueberry. Oh, well, actually, strawberry won. Well. <laughs> <laughs> but that's <Stanford>. OK. <laughs> we at the GSB love to be outliers, so it's OK. I, I understand. <laughs> well, and then here's some behind-the-scenes footage. <laughs> If you'd like to use these as marketing materials, feel free. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you for playing along. In preparation for our conversation, I learned that Chobani can be loosely translated to shepherd. Can you tell, tell us about the significance there? Sure. Um, and your background is Greek, as I understood just yes. now, which is beautiful. And in, I don't know if you speak Greek, but it also sounds like Chobani, but I, I won't kill it. It's like Sopani, something, <laughs> yes. something like this. Um, and in Turkish, it's Choban. Um, and by the way, I want to say merhaba to my Turkish uh, brothers and sisters. I have that they're here. <laughs> and, and of course, all of you. I'm just <laughs> a little homesick. But um, um, then. The, the, I, grew, I grew up on the eastern part of Turkey, in the northeast, um, and nomad, uh, a tribal life. So my earliest memories are with shepherds. And Choban means shepherds. I don't, so my earliest memories are all shepherds, shepherd stories, uh, interaction with shepherds, uh, family members being shepherds. I was too little, but being eager to go with them to the, you know, caring for the animals. So when I was looking for a name, I was traveling from uh, Chicago to Madison, Wisconsin. And the reason for that is I drove from that road to go to this old equipment dealership 
in Madison, Wisconsin, so I can buy this separator where it's essential to make Greek yogurt to separate liquid from the, from the uh, mass. <clears throat> and in that drive, I don't know if any of you have done that drive, it's a very boring drive. I mean, it's a long drive, not much radius work, and it's 2006. I don't know if I was bored or if it was the Christian radio I was listening that they were talking about shepherds all the time. <laughs> I came up with the name Chobani at that drive. And when I came back to Chicago and I looked it up and Chobani.com was available and that's how we came up. Amazing. <laughs> well, we've learned in a lot of our classes and case studies the importance of a brand connection and, and that brand history and you obviously have a yeah. fantastic and I, one. I really, we, I started Shepherd's Gift Foundation day one. A lot of people don't know what meanings of it. Um, inside the company, people do know. But they had significance for me was, okay, Chobani sounds really nice. As a sound, it sounds nice. Um, but then the, the emotional, uh, the weight of that word for me was, uh, you, you know, you look at it throughout the history, and, and we can call it the new shepherds now, but you look at throughout the generations of humankind, we look up the shepherds, um, and it represented pureness. It represented unconditional giving. It represented humanity, safety, and wisdom. Hmm. And I have seen those in my own experience you know, as a growing up. So I thought, if I can bring the elements of those right from the beginning with the name into this uh, company that I'm launching, it would be a great success. And I had no idea how long would I go. I, long, I had no idea how far I would make it or if I would be able to put elements of it in there. But my personal connections, but also that was the idea that Chobani um, worked really well. Mm. Well, it all started on a small farm in Turkey, but now, obviously, Chobani has found incredible success. There are countless business ideas and, and aspiring founders out there who are all trying to create the next big thing. In your opinion, what are some of the key magical ingredients that help create a breakthrough company that scales? Oh, wow. Um. <laughs> And, you know, I have to be very honest. I'm not, um, I, I did not have a previous knowledge or experience of business. So uh, my, my earlier experience is, as I said, with the Shepherds. Later on, I went to university in Ankara, became an activist, started publishing newspapers, and got into trouble with the government, and I had to get out. Uh, some experience with the police station, but then out. <laughs> um, and then I found myself in upstate New York working in a farm. So basically, I was home again in upstate New York and not necessarily know what I was going to do with my life. And there was not a massive urgency of what I'm going to do with my life. I'm really, um, one thing that I can tell about myself, not in a bragging way, is I was never nervous about life. Not that I had anything about it, but I didn't have this urgency of, oh, I have to do this, or I have to do this. Um, I always had, growing up, you know, being up in those moons and mountains where we grow up as nomads, I was always wondering what was behind the tallest mountain that we could see from our tents. And I had that curiosity that what would be beyond those mountains? 
So my, my journey was always, I wonder what life is going to be bringing. So I'm just going to go. And I found out later on that I was never rigid. Like, I never made plans that would stop me from changing it, going this direction or that direction. I was in a city in a bus in, in trying to learn English. And teacher said, I had a farm in upstate New York. I went up there. She said, do you want to stay here? I said, sure, I'm going to stay. And I became a farmer for a year and a half. And then somebody said, there is an economic development site that they support businesses. And I went there, and they said, do you want to make cheese? I said, yeah, I'd like to make some cheese. <laughs> and then later on, I saw an ad and said, fully equipped yogurt plant for sale. And I said, I'll go look at it, take a look at it that evening. And I went to look at the plant right there. And I said, you know what? I'll buy this place. Despite the fact everybody says, you don't have money. You have no idea what you're thinking. There's a big company leaving. But I was just curious, what would it be like from that emotion that I had in that plant? So I'm not in a position to say what makes uh, businesses to scale, because I've seen a numerous, numerous businesses in front of my eye to start and grow, became extremely powerful. But I can tell you what makes joy in business. If you're a founder, and if you are the beginning, you know, starting person in the journey, I can tell you that you could have enormous amount of experiences through this. And for me, it's, it is tremendous. I, I, I'm a kid from the shepherds. I, I traveled 1,000 years. I feel like I traveled 1,000 years. If you look at my early days, I'm in a tribe where tradition has not changed for hundreds of hundreds of years. Now it's changed. Shepherds have cell phones. But the, back then, when I left, <laughs> it was the same way they made the butter. It was the same way they did the weddings. It was the same way they grieved. It was the same day, way they interacted socially with each other. It had not had changed so dramatically. The only time that they would go see somewhere outside of the town and we get sick, or they went to military service. But outside of that, it was the same thing. So for me, it's been an amazing journey. And I had to you know, adjust as I, as, I, as I went through. But at the true joy, true power of business comes when you see that it has a direct impact on people's life. And as it gets successful and bigger, it becomes extremely powerful. And this, I had no idea about this until I started. Now, what I can tell you on that one is if you want to make business joyful, but also very successful, it has to be embedded very, very early on, day one. And it truly needs to be embedded early on. And then becomes magical. Like, you just don't know how things come into life. You just don't know how you find solutions. People will give you credits. 99% of it is not you. It's the environment that you created, or you've been part of to be created, that inputs come from left and right. Ideas come from left and right. People become heroes. People become solution makers. And it becomes this magical environment. And I always said, it's an elevated environment. So how do you become, make an elevated environment? Yeah, money is good. And you can do a lot of things with it. And people get excited about it. The people I hired 
uh, that they let go in the factory, in that old factory, that the old factory, old company, they just fired them, left them behind, and just left. This is another topic that you could talk about for hours. Those same companies are going to be millionaires. Oh, maybe lawyers said I shouldn't be saying this. But the factory workers, right? But I couldn't motivate them if I told them, work with me, I'm going to make you a millionaire. Maybe, but not that great. But if you create an environment and say, these people left you, and these people left us, these people left this factory, children, this community, these farmers. And I've seen this happen where I come from. This is a responsibility of business. It's happening everywhere. And there is an answer to this. We can go out and scream and protest and all that kind of stuff. Or even though we don't have money, even though we don't have experience, even though we don't have network, even though we don't have that kind of uh, capability, but we can put ourselves together in this tiny little town, in this very old factory. And we could dream that this factory can become one of the biggest factories in this country in the next five years. And we could dream that we could be number one brand in this country, and we can kick those people ass and close this factory. And we can give the answer to them this way. And you can talk to pure four factory workers that way. And if you truly act upon it, you can make them believe as much as you believe. And then magic starts happening. Now, in that moment, if you say, physically, this is not possible. Because in order for you to be a number one brand in five years, a billion dollars in sales in five years from this old factory, you will have 16 to 18 lines. Those lines are 400 to 600 cups per minute. They will cost anywhere five to $10 million. And they will take about two years to build. So then, in order to have them, you, know, you make the calculation. So in five years, this is literally impossible. So if you're going to make it five years, you're probably going to make two million cases a week. That means a pallet of yogurt every 15 seconds. Now, now when you talk about it, it's a quiet place. There's nobody there. It's an old place. You can dismiss that idea and you say, you're not going to be a billion dollars in sales in business in five years and stay 100% independent. And you will find all the money you needed to make this happen, that you don't have to raise penny of capital. And, and then you will give the answer to the world. Impossible. But then slowly start happening. Toilets turn into office. Park lot, parking lot turns into a cooler space with the trailers. You find user, used fillers somewhere else, and people find it in their nighttime talkings. And we literally turn that place into that place. And I had no, no previous experience of doing so. So what I can tell you in a short answer is I found magic in purpose. And I found magic and, and, and an amazing harmonization of love and, and anger. <laughs> it's OK to be angry. I've been angry all my life. But if we can channel it through in a very positive way, that becomes an enormous energy. And the result of it, I can't put a price of the joy and benefit that you get from it. It's, mm. it's one of the most beautiful things that I've been part of, of that business effect on people's life. Mm. Well, clearly, a lot of magic happened in that old factory that you found, a 95-year-old craft factory. 
and you decided to take out a small business loan yep. to purchase the factory to start producing the yogurt. At the GSB, we talk a lot about venture capital, and I'm curious about your decision to take a small business loan versus raise VC money. Uh, well, I didn't know about that world. <laughs> I, I swear I didn't know. <laughs> and I saw this old factory, and I started wondering how I can buy this. And there was this key bank's local Johnstown, New York, Key Bank regional sales guys, um, representatives, Pat Mucci and John Ryder. Pat Mucci passed away, and John Ryder is still out there. And I told them, I said, I want to do the bath plan. John Ryder thought that was a crazy idea, stupid. Pat Mucci, this Sicilian Italian guy, most you know, heavy big guy, and says, I believe you. You're going to do something. I don't know what, but you're going to do something. I'm going to help you out. And he says, You have this SBA loan. If you can make a business plan and you come up with 40% of the funding that needed, oh, I'm sorry, if you, if you can come up with 10% of the funding that needed, the bank will come up with 40% and the SBA will provide the 50% loan guarantee so we can fund a million bucks, you can buy this factory. So the factory was $700,000 and I needed $300,000 to start it. So I wrote my first <laughs> business plan and, and basically that's what they did uh, for me to start buy that factory. Later on, I got calls from like 2009, 2010. My fear was not that I, don't, I want to keep everything to myself. My fear was um, if I bring somebody in Will they, will they affect me, one, to crowd my head with unnecessary noises and voices and talks and all that kind of stuff? The second one is, will they force me to do things that I don't want to do? Um, so I, I, I try so hard not to keep it, keep it simple, keep it pure. And the business really performed. Um, you know, from 2007, October, and by 2009, um, I, I, I kept the business so simple. I mean, some people say this is, like I was in QuickBooks until $670 million in sales. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And then since they changed it, I have no idea what the business is now. I have no idea. <laughs> I understood everything about business until six, $700 million. Um, <laughs> That's fair. But I kept it so simple, and, and I realized that, and I still give that fight at Chobani today, is there's a lot of unnecessary noises that happens in boardrooms, in, in factory floors, and titles, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I, I kept it extremely simple, and I'm still giving that fight. Um, and I was very cost-oriented. I was a factory worker. I did not leave that factory for seven years, more than three days, three days, maybe a month or so for some sales calls. And I was so into every single details of happening in that factory and the product and every single detail that you can think of. I mean, I was a little crazy. Maybe I was a little bit too much, but, um, and there you would find opportunities, problems about to happen, or solution that you need to come up with. Um, and so that kept it 
you know, really profitable, so I didn't have to raise any capital. Hmm. Well, you took a bet on yourself and on your ability to bring Greek yogurt to the United States, and it obviously definitely paid off. Uh, but it's easy to forget that in 2010, there were no Greek yogurt brands being advertised on TV. And then two years later, there were eight different brands. What did that competition do to you? <laughs> I knew it was coming. And that's what I said to anybody who come up with the idea of the food items in the United States, especially in the United States. It's a very, very challenging environment. And I saw this very, very early on. So there's the separation between specialty stores and the mass market in the United States. But if you go to, let's say, Turkey, Europe, any other countries, there are some middle market companies. There are regional businesses. There are businesses that are not so big, but not so small. They have capability to supply regionally, all crossed. And, 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 and those are almost don't exist in this country if you're, if you're countrywide, system-wide mass uh, food maker. So early on, I really understood that the big guys, they never make innovations. They don't have to. So when I started, you have a, a cup of Danone or a cup of your plate at the time. You look at it, 35 gram sugar. I mean, you have the ingredients from top to bottom. I don't know if you guys remember those days. And they were advertising all day long how healthy this stuff is. And then, you know, the cost is extremely cheap. All the factories are made to make those cups. And they have all the reasons to keep that things that way. So you don't want anyone to disrupt that. And if you look at mass food environment in this country, which is the reason of a lot of problems that we're facing today when it comes to health, is held by large corporations, large food corporations, that have massive supply chain capability and enormous amount of one-to-one -one relationship with the retailers, that those are maybe 10 maybe 12 companies that hold vast majority of food in this, that produced and consumed in this country. Because for startups, it's extremely difficult to create those capabilities so you can be a true partner with Walmart or Kroger or you know, Safeway. So what you become is a specialty player. So specialty like Whole Foods and all that class, it's only maybe less than 5% of the market. So 95% of the market is on the mass. So when somebody comes, I have a great idea, good. So you just worked so hard for two years to create it. And then you went, knock door and door and all the specialty stores and prove that this works. And the big guys come for two questions. One is, do you want to sell? And sometimes you're forced to sell because all the capital that you raise until that idea comes to life. And when it comes to food, it's very, very capital incentives. In terms, in, uh, capital heavy, uh, they come with questions. You want to sell? We love what you do. Four times sales, five times sales, whatever it is. But then they come the second half. If you don't, I'll make the same thing. It's not your idea anymore. It's everybody's idea. So it goes into a big guy's uh, ability. Let's say oatmeal came up. Like how many oatmeals out there, right? Everybody can make the oatmeal now. So basically, when you have the supply chain you can be immune to competition if your brand is very, very strong and your value proposition is very strong and there's something unique about you. But if you don't have the supply chain, you've got no place to go. So what I said, when I saw them, I said, they're going to come. And before they come, I have to make two decisions. Either I want to stay small 
or I have to pass certain level that they cannot hurt me anymore. And I bet on the second one. Um, so, so at that time, they were so slow. By the time they came up, I was already six, $700 million sales. And I was distributed all across the country. And I was building a plant in Idaho. But when they came, they came really, really, really hard. Because you just embarrassed one of the largest yogurt makers in the world. You know, mm. in a very bad way. So they say, <laughs> just, you know, I, I understand somebody come up with an idea and make some nice noises in Whole Foods and all those places. But now I'm losing shares in Stop and Shop and Costco. This is not nice. So. So we have to be very, I always tell uh, my colleagues, we have an incubator, you say you have to focus on manufacturing fundamentals when you are in the food business. So at Chobani, people think that I built a yogurt and flavors. 90% of the time I spent, it's factories, supply chain. These boring details that nobody wants to talk about. But in the end, if you're going to disrupt any category in this country, which has not been disrupted in a massive way, if you look at it. Uh, you have to focus on the supply chain. Well, clearly, you were able to disrupt the, the industry and rise above the, the competition, all the while still focusing on the human spirit and not just focusing on the spreadsheets, as you've said before. And an incredible example of that, of not just looking at the spreadsheets, is your decision to grant shares to all 2,000 employees, including factory workers, in 2016. I'm sure there were some people who were not thrilled with that decision, but you made it anyway. What was your thinking there? I always said, um, and it's still considered like as if I'm the nice guy, I give a gift, um, and I have seen this unjust from me growing up and becoming a you know, young adult in university and this in Turkey and, and later on here is irresponsibility of business. What I saw in that little town is that factory was there for, like you said, 80, 95 years. When the things were good, the steam was coming off from the chimney. And the products were going, and the trucks were coming, and people had jobs. When things didn't look good, somebody made a decision in a headquarter that if we cut off this business and you know, we'll save so much money. And those people left behind. So why is this factory workers, this, and in this pandemic we saw, we call them frontline <laughs> workers, but who are they? Are they real? Truck drivers, factory workers, nurses, and, and all those people that some of them are parents, some of it uh, are, are, are relatives. Uh, that they move the society forward. But when the bad days comes in business, they're the first one to be blamed. So in my scenario, four factory workers, later on 10, later on 50, later on 100, with me, we built that things back together. I've never made that promise because I didn't know if I could make that false promise. I didn't know if I would be succeed, so I don't want to give some. But when I knew that we had it, it was the decision I made day one that everyone who worked to build this have right to have a, a, a share of it or, 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 or part of the success that we have generated. And I truly believe in this new way of looking at uh, business and what it means in society, where it comes in an enormous amount of strong 
affect and how society moves forward, and, and businesses are behaving that way. But this income inequality between working people and people on top is getting, even in this country, is getting deeper and sharper. And that's the only way you can save that, is governments can do policies and all that kind of stuff. But if we can make businesses to share um, its success with the stakeholder, and most importantly, with its workers, is the only way moving forward. And I hope that this becomes a, a, you know, a, a, a very normal practice, not that you, you brag about it. It's the same way all the startups that happen in, here in Silicon Valley. It's a very common thing, but it's not common when it comes to the vast majority of uh, service industry, manufacturing industry, and, and especially in our food industry. Mm. You've said before that social impact needs to be a key part of a company's DNA. And you clearly represent that from the top down. But do you have some examples of how that's represented from the bottom up? How is it represented from bottom up? Uh, if you could give a little like, more. So uh, the kind of impact that maybe a factory worker can have on making social impact part of the identity. Um, yeah, I, I think um, it, if there's this magic word culture, and 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 I've I've seen a lot of things that people talk about culture, people talk about all this diversity, inclusion, things that we offer, what's in the handbook of employee handbooks, and what do we write in the walls, and all that kind of stuff. The funny thing about culture is, it's either real or it's just not there, or it's just it's in the walls and it's in the papers. When it's real, then everybody uh, is committed to be part of it. There is this, this unspoken rule that starts happening in that environment. And for the founders, you'll be a founder, a lot of people will be founder here, is the cultures are built mostly in the very early beginning. So I'd say the first few years. And what happens in the first few years is you are very intensely together, and it's very close. And there's a lot of conversation happens. And you face a lot of challenges. And you find a lot of solutions. And then you kind of come into close to almost die, you know, finish the whole thing. In those environments, the real you come out. How you behave in those environments. There's a recording is happening during that time. And those stories being told later on forever. So what, 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 I, what I can say is my early few years were so intense, and I was so present. And I'm so proud of myself. Uh, I really am. I'm not proud of a lot of things I've done, but I'm really proud of the first few years that I was in there. I was in a meeting in the second or third year, and I gathered all our employees. And these are all you know, upstate New York, Harley drivers, big guys, right? some of them. And I brought them all in the cafeteria, and I said, we just started something magical. I can see this is going somewhere really, really good. But I'm not sure if I can handle this. I have never been part of this before. 
So I said, I don't have anyone around me. I don't have a mother. I don't have wife. I don't have girlfriend. I don't have children. I don't have family members. I'm alone. So I have you. You're my family. And if you see me, I go in a wrong way. If you see me, I act in a wrong way. Like nose up in the air, start behaving like I'm a big guy, big shot, and start doing weird stuff. I give permission, every single one of you, to hit me on the face. <laughs> I literally said that. And there are some big guys. <laughs> and I said, you would give me a service if you do that. Because I don't want this magic to be done. And I'm not sure if I can handle it. I'm just a human being. And nobody hit me. Um, Yet. But. <laughs> um, I, think, I think if I go back, there is Maria, there is Rick, there's Mike, there's Frank, um, there's, there's, I can name a lot of people in that place that has significant, Kyle, significant impact on Chobani as much as I am. But their names are not mentioned in newspapers and they're not sitting here next to you. So what I'm saying is um, if you create that culture Every single individual contributes as, as big as what you do. Mm. Well, that's great. And you've shared their names here today. And I'm sure they, they really appreciate that. Another area you've had amazing impact is with refugees. And 30% of Chobani's manufacturing force are refugees or immigrants. Unfortunately, not everyone is as welcoming of these communities as you are. So could you maybe share? a statistic or an argument that you have found to be most effective in convincing people to change their minds? I'm so happy you brought this up. Um, so Tent um, um, came out of this experience that I had in upstate New York when we expand the factory and hire everybody that was, was get at go before, expand a little bit further. And then it hit the town in Utica, which I used to live, and people said there are refugees that are settled in Utica, and this is 2008, 2009, that area, from all across the world, legally being settled as refugees. They're having very much hard time to find jobs. So I went to, I went to settlement, uh, refugee agency, and I said, what's, what's the problem? And she, this heavenly lady, she said, um, they don't speak the language, they don't have cars, they don't have trainings of jobs that are available here. But most importantly, people, people really are a little, you know. I said, what? Is it afraid of them? Or what is it? It's that, you know, people are not familiar with people coming from Asia and Africa and the Middle East. This is a rural community. I said, OK, uh, I need workers. I had everyone in my community that, that is available. Uh, let's do something. So we'll get some cars and buses. We'll get some translators. And we, we see how that goes. He said, are you sure? I said, yeah. I, I think this will be good. So that we started not a refugee work. It was a community work where people are left behind, left out. And they have no way of getting in. And just breaking those barriers, but just cars, translators, and in-job training. It's an HR work, really. It's not a big deal and said, let's, let's bring them in and let's people to get to know each other and, and interact with each other. 
And it became this thing. <laughs> and it brought so much energy to the company. People loved it. it Brotherhood, sisterhood was built, and people who have never had seen someone from Nepal or someone from Ethiopia or someone from South America. And it was so magical, and I just saw things are happening like I couldn't believe in my eyes. So when I built a plant in Idaho, did the same thing. And then we saw three years later, four years later, and people would come to me tell me about their experiences. I just bought home, I, my, 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 my daughter is in this school. So this magic of having an access to job for a refugee is the moment that they stop being a refugee. Hmm. That is the only moment they start being part of a, a community, they start being part of a society, they can build their life for themselves and for their children. So I thought, how could I take this experience that I had into a large scale? So I went to Switzerland, uh, Geneva, and talked to UNHCR and IRC and some other things, and what I realized, the absence of business in this refugee topic, which is probably one of the most alarming humanitarian crises that we are facing today. We have faced it during the, you know, World War II, when the, uh, Europe had so much refugees, especially Jewish refugees, are fleeing all over the world, and humanity did not perform well at that time. And this is again happening, and it's happening in a lot of places. And I thought, the, the other saddest thing is how this topic is being part of political uh, conversations and how it's you know, profiled as so unfairly, so bad. And the only way you can cut this through is if you can tie it into a power of brands and businesses and CEOs, which today have more respect and, and believability rates than anybody else. So I launched it with uh, Airbnb. Joe has been you know, amazing on this topic. Airbnb has been amazing. MasterCard, um, IJ has been amazing on this from very early on. Uh, and a few others in Davos in 2016. And what I said is, we'll do scientific studies. Uh, we've done a lot with Stern at you know, business schools and some economists and branding people. We did market research in each market, Europe, South America, US, Canada, and demographics. And we said, here, statistics are, refugees are staying in the job 30 to 40 times, 40% longer than anybody else. Productivity level, and we have done all these studies, is uh, twice more than anyone you would have. Um, and then every dollar you spend on refugees in five years, the longest, usually is a lot earlier than that, the longest in any society in five years pays back. And then positive after, forever. Um, all these studies we've done. And then we've done marketing studies and say, how people think about your brand and your company if you hire refugees, train refugees, and you're pro-refugees. And we found, we did all these market studies and found out that it, that what it does to brand, brand and what it does to talent coming into your company when they know you're you know, socially active in the refugee field. So by one, one by one, we convince companies to come and join. Today we are over 200 companies worldwide. And when the Afghanis were coming, you know, refugees from Afghanistan just a month ago, we had over 60 companies signed up publicly 
very beautifully and, and, and committing to hire refugees, train them right, right away. So this, this coalition that we have built together, um, it became extremely powerful. It's the first business coalition that's been built. Now, if you talk to anybody, um, we've been to Colombia, we've been to Canada, we've been to you know, uh, refugee camps all over the world. Um, if you look at, if you talk to the companies that who have gone into these businesses, enormous amount of effect internally in the company that you have. So it's really, really good for business. Um, and I don't find any other way other than businesses, you know, coming into these topics and any other topics that society is facing, and make it part of their HR department, part of their manufacturing and people department or service department. And it's not check the box, it's, it's organically you know, embedded into operation, then you can see the, the light under the tunnel. But it's very early beginning. I am extremely passionate about it. And I think these people have been gone through so much pain and sorrow and difficulties that they didn't want to leave, they didn't want to go through this. But now they are in these unstuck uh, places that human capacity and potential through business they can come into society, they can come into uh, their life and rebuild their life, and the businesses can benefit and society can benefit from this. Um, so it's very simple, hire them, train them, and use your supply chain to keep them in the, uh, in, in the wherever they are into the uh, supply chain, and, and you'll benefit greatly. Mm. Well, I love that your answer has statistics to back you up. Absolutely. But of course, as always, you're speaking from the heart and focusing on the human spirit there. And our theme for this slate of speakers this year has been going beyond, going beyond expectations of a CEO or a leader. And I think you've done an incredible job of exemplifying that. So thank you. Thank you. And I... I um... <laughs> I am I'm so honored to be with you and with you all. Um, I have not uh, graduated from university, so I, I'm a- Not yet. <laughs> not yet. Um, uh, but um, enormous amount of respect to this institution, enormous amount of respect that solutions and innovations and the way that how to form humanity and society better through innovation and business coming out of the society, you guys are inspiring us all. It's, it's the most amazing thing. And being here, being with you is, is something that I will not forget. And thank you for the invitation. So thanks, thanks, thanks for this oh, moment. Thank you. Thank you. Great. We are now going to move to some questions from the audience. Thank you so much for being here and inspiring us. I love the, your comment about the joy and, the, and creating a culture from the beginning. So my question to you is, Chavani is doing so much and like trying to go forefront in so many, so many topics. And there are two things that capture my attention when looking at what they're doing. One is this incubator for new businesses. And when I first read it, I was like, oh, wow. They're actually funding other companies who could be competition. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you a little bit about that initiative of the incubator. And also, what would you like to see more in the sector? 
uh, to help move, move and push this initiative forward. What a beautiful question. Um, I find food in, in, in the US is one of the fundamental problems that we need to solve. And the problem is you can make food that is very good ingredients, but it's very expensive. People cannot afford it. And, and then the big guys, they make very bad food. It's, it's very accessible. So how do you make accessible food that is wholesomely made, is nutritionally made, that every children, every family members across the country can have it? So that was my thing, is uh, good food for all. Delicious, nutritious, uh, natural, and accessible. Because you can make $5 yogurt, but how many people are going to buy that? Um, so what I did is we found a way. Like we found, we found a way to make a dollar a yogurt that made extremely wholesome ingredients that have 11 gram protein uh, that are available in Walmart for $1 or Kroger for $1.20, but everybody can buy. So I wanted to share that with the, with the startups. So I started the, uh, the, fund, uh, the incubator, Chaban Incubator, and I said, no string attached. I don't want anything back. I don't want any percentage or anything. All I wanted to do is, if I was starting my journey in 2007, the things that I wish I had known back then, what would those be? And I made a list of five, kind of five or seven. And I wanted to share those with people who are starting their journey that had the like-minded entrepreneurs, they have the right attitude, and they see the same thing. And we started this. It became very, very popular. And incubator people will come four months, five months, stay with us. Engineering, quality, plants, branding, marketing, all the doors are open for all of them. And we had um, an, an amazing women founders came, veterans founders came, um, and, and the farmers, farmers and inter, uh, entrepreneurs came. And I started with Turkey, too. I did it for four years. I brought 30 students from Turkey from all across the country, and then five, six startups every year. That was the summer program. I think one of the most beautiful things we can do is share the experience and knowledge without string, being in string attached and open it up. So the second reason I had is we cannot be alone on this. We, have, we need a community. So that's, that's the reason. Either another yogurt maker, another food maker, whatever it is, this new good food making movement for, for all has to be a community for us to be, be able to make a dent into this problem. So I thought we might not be as big as the other big guys, but if we are part of a community and we collaborate with each other, we share from each other, then we can really make this a, a mass thing. So that was the second reason that I started it. Hi, Hamdur. This is Mitat from Istanbul. I'm also Hi. a fan of your fan. So uh, thank you very much for coming here and sharing your uh, insights uh, about entrepreneurship and impact. Uh, and I would like to, like your uh, comments on like being an international immigrant entrepreneur in the US was very important and uh, was very um, truly inspiring for all the international students who want to start businesses here. And I would like to ask, like, what would be your top three tips for them to start like, great businesses in the US? Uh, what a great question, Mithat. Um, really get to know America. 
And what I can suggest for people like us coming from outside, for the Americans, there is politics, there is celebrity, there is footballs and all that kind of stuff. That's a different thing. <laughs> <laughs> but for us, um, we come with pre-judgments. And those judgments can be because of what we read, because of the political background we come from, whatever that might be. And, and I tell this to refugees too, get rid of all those pre-ideas. Get to know America, if this is what you want to live in. And I say that because dismissal is extremely easy. Like, I don't like this. I don't like what they do here. I don't like what they do here. But if you look at it for the large part, we are the same, right? So when I went upstate New York, worked in that farm, I re in New York City, I couldn't. There's more Turks in New York City than you know, um, uh, natives. Um, um, <laughs> so it's Turkey in New York City if you want to stay in Turkey. But when I was upstate New York, there's farmers, the people have been there for generations. You get to know this. The, the soil, you get to know the culture, you get to know the background. And start loving apple pie. Um, <laughs> and Thanksgiving, the magic of Thanksgiving, like I was amazed by it. Uh, interactions of the farmers with each other, I was amazed by it. And, and I celebrated those a lot. And it get me to, when I started celebrating, then I, I started to get to know the people and the culture and the history. And I think in the entrepreneurship, there's a little bit of anthropology is really involved in it. And, and that is your own experience with people, without a judgment, to understand. And people look at Chobani, they think that we are you know, very liberal activist brand. You have to understand, our two plants in upstate New York and Idaho, they are 70, 80% red states, red areas. And these are one of my closest brothers and sisters. We made human connections because we understood each other. I still make my argument that there should be, uh, you know, minimum wage uh, with the Idaho government. I still make an argument that when they ban transgenders in the schools, and I strongly disagree with that. But in a the, in the human level, we understand each other. We can sit down and break bread and talk about things. And I can still celebrate the deep culture of Idaho in a family level and in other, other levels. So what I, my recommendation is truly try to understand. And you'll find more beauty than you've ever imagined, especially in the rural areas, especially in the family interactions. Is there some not so good things? Of course. It's everywhere. So that's my first. And the second one is, don't try to be like them. Stay who you are. What you brought where you come from are so beautiful, so amazing, and so valuable. And this country celebrates that tremendously. So how do you make sure that what you see and what you bring that can beautifully homogenize with each other? I never forgot being a shepherd's son from eastern part of Turkey. I never forgot that boy. And if I go back, tomorrow, and if I put a mask on and nobody recognized me, I can go to that mountain and start being under that tent and be with the shepherds, and they would never know I left. Because I never forget that. I live that every single day. So you don't have to leave who you are to become successful for another place.
the most successful person is brings the beauty of where you come from and to take and homogenize it here. And I always said, I brought a seed from where I come and I found a beautiful soil here. And that's become a, this plant. It's mm, beautiful. Hamdi, hi. My name is Yvonne. Thank you so much for being here. I'm a second you. year. In the 45 or 50 minutes we've been with you, you've connected so well with us. And I'm curious, as a CEO and founder, do you draw lines with your people? And if so, when do you do that? And how do you know what lines to draw? Thank you. Um, look, I, I, think, I think we have to be... There's, there's, um, thank you. I was smiling on my, under my, <laughs> yes. um, and so, so gracious. Thank you so much. Um, yes. Um, look, as long as they know you're real, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to draw the lines. It's okay to have tough conversations. And as long as it's not personal. I always said, I mean, my colleague Nishal is here, <laughs> and I love him. He's, we've done wonders together, and we have tough times together. <laughs> And as long as he knows I'm angry about the thing, not at him. And, and we have not written a lot of rules in the company, but it's a lot of knowns. One thing that I have no, I have no um, patience for is disrespect. Like that just, either in a social environment or inside the company, to talk about one of your colleagues in a very disrespectful way or making somebody uncomfortable in the space is something that I think that is poison in business field if, there is a, if it exists. And that I have, I mean, that is one of them. Second one is when somebody suggests preservatives in food. That's <laughs> 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 like, just like, no, that shit is not going to happen. Um, and, um, I think um, introduction of poison in a very small way in the business field, and sometimes you say it's just a tiny thing. Those things later on grows and becomes a really big thing. So if you are very, and I have, I have uh, relaxed certain things along the way, which I thought that was really big thing for that time, but not necessarily right now. Like I had this thing that. If I open a cup of yogurt and if I see yogurt on the lid, I'll get so upset. People were so scared of it. So I will, I will go to the store and I open the yogurt and I see the yogurt on the lid. And I said, that means that we have not done our filling right. Those fillers were so, so fast. So I would go and give so much bad time for our operation people. <laughs> and then I give up. So who gives a really shit about it? <laughs> like, it's okay. It, 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 there is trucks and there is people are... If they're buying it, if they put in their shopping bag, it's going to happen anyway. So there are things that is not realistic. <laughs> but um, I, I really do believe um, the, 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 the having real conversations, sometimes not pleasant conversation, is totally fine and totally okay. We are not a foundation. We are a real business. And I never, I always wanted to tell people, I'm not an NGO. This is not an NGO. This is, this is a business, and it has to self-sufficient itself. And every year, 10% of the people will leave, let go, or fire, or whatever that is. It's just function of business. 
And I think we need to know that if we are going to build a, a society where business finds a way to solve these fundamental problems and be part of it, it cannot behave like an NGO. It's a real business. And I don't know if you want to put a tagline of a social enterprise or this and that. I don't have to sound like I'm, a, I'm from church or I'm from Save America or Save the Children. I don't have to. I'm business. I innovate. I compete. I don't like my competitors. If they are so good, I'll find a way to hate them one way or another. Uh, kidding aside, this is the excitement part of business that gets me get going is I can think about things, how I can win the battles in the shelf. For the right reason, it makes it even better. But the field of business is something that you will not find in anywhere else where you can put all your capability, leadership, innovation, human connection, interaction, teamwork, I don't know, you name it. That the places that you touch, it's just amazing, it's, it's, especially if you're a founder or if you're a founding partner. So it's an amazing place, so let's keep it business. But there has to be a silent language, knowledge, or conviction, or everyone agrees that we, we operate this within these boundaries. We know why we do what we do. We don't have to talk about it and brag about it all the time. We know that we are safe and we are all together, and this is our space. Everybody's in here. And we know that we have some certain performances that we have to do it. And if we don't, it's not going to be punishment. We're going to find a way to do it together. But those boundaries can be created. And within that, we'll have some pleasant conversation and some not pleasant conversation. I think that's totally fine. Thank you to the students for those great questions. Hamdi, I noticed that you often wear what is important to you on your head. And so in honor to honor your time with us here today. Oh my God. I got a special GSB hat that actually says view from the top on the back. So thank you so much for your time. And, and in, in my personal life, I always wear hats. And I wear three hats, always. One is Chobani. Today, I decided to come here with my tent hat, because I'm extremely passionate about tent also. And the third one is my, my colleagues from Turkey would know, Fenerbahce hat, my soccer team. But Chobani is the, my first love. So I'll present Aww. you this. And thank you. Thank you. From the Top, the podcast, a production of Stanford Graduate School of Business. This interview was conducted by me, Alexandra Idle, of the class of 2022. Lily Sloan composed our theme music. Michael Riley and Jenny Luna produced this episode. Follow us on social media at Stanford GSB.